Hello everyone, this is Trey Borden, and welcome to this episode of What We Gonna Do. Welcome to another episode of What We Gonna Do. I'm Trey Borden, your host, and we have used this platform um, these last 30 episodes. This is the 30th episode, by the way, so um, hard to believe. But we've been trying to give a platform to people who are of color, to women, LGBT people. There's so many people who are feeling very threatened by this environment, and all of us have had to kind of do more than we've ever done to kind of prevent uh, oblivion, as it looks like kind of hurtling towards us from happening. Um, and a big part of that has been talking to kind of women, but I thought that, you know, especially with the passing of RBG and what seems to be like a just relentless assault on womanhood, on female leadership, you know, a resurgence of misogyny of, you know, just kind of all the things that we thought we've been kind of covering, uh, and getting some ground on, um, seem to be in peril. And so I thought this would be an opportune moment to, um, kind of talk about, gender equity, kind of how can this be a opportunity to pull women and all people together? Because really we're talking about is people refusing to give up power. They don't want to give it up to people of color. They don't want to give it up to LGBT people. They don't want to give it up to women. And so I think that like, this is the, the fight we're in. And so I think that this episode, we're going to talk to some extreme badasses that I am, have a pleasure to know personally and who've done a lot of work in their professional and their personal lives to really um, push the issue of equality um, on a national and global scale. And so I'm very happy to have both Adama, you and Jody Hicks here today. And um, before we get started, I'll let them introduce themselves. So Jody, why don't we start with you? Sure. Thank you so much for having me. This is, it's great. And it's cathartic to, to talk to fellow people in this fight. So thank you, I appreciate it. Um, I'm Jody Hicks. I'm the current president and CEO of Planned Parenthood Affiliates of California. Um, I also have three kids during this, two daughters. So I think I'll, I'll end up bringing my daughters into this conversation a lot as well. But thank you for having me. My pleasure. Um, and Adama. Hi, Trey. Um, hi, Jody. Uh, it's really cool to uh, have this opportunity to talk with you guys. Um, respect both of you so much. Trey, I just love what you're doing with this platform and really seeking answers and really digging for them because I think that's really important that we continue to have these conversations even in the midst of chaos, like you kind of pointed out. Uh, my name is Adama. I'm Currently, my job, my day job is I'm vice president for state government and community relations at Visa, but I'm also the co-founder of We Said Enough, um, which is a movement that many women like Jody worked with me on in politics to start working on some of the um, abuse and harassment and sexual assault that we see happening in political circles that to us was really a way to keep women out of politics, which is a critically important sphere for us to be in and to be really present and loud in. So thanks for having me today. Please, and we're gonna get loud today. Um, and I'm really and proud of what- say she's Adama's only, the friend that I have that was on the cover of Time Magazine? <laughs> like I knew she yeah. wasn't gonna First say that about Don't let, let you forget, uh, she's so yeah. modest. This was not just a piddling little effort. This is something that really had wide, wide reaching impact. And so, yes, that was 
uh, it continues to be a very proud moment for all of us. Um, so I guess the way I'd like to start, I think, is just how are you? You know, because I, I think that like, you know, before we got on the call, Jody was talking about kind of just how traumatic all of this is. And I just thought, you know, I know that it's been a daily struggle for me to kind of keep hope alive and to kind of understand that we do have the power to hopefully overcome these seemingly just immovable forces against us. But kind of like, how are you? Uh, we can start with Adama. Um, you know, not good. Um, <laughs> you know, I... Honestly, the only thing keeping me going is that there's an election in less than 30 days and that people are already voting in higher numbers than they did in 16. Um, that people are not kind of falling into poll malaise where they think, oh, this is going to be the outcome. So, like, I'll just sit this out. It doesn't really matter. Um, people are turning out and voting. And that's really the only thing that's like, I feel like keeping me going right now. But um, otherwise, you know, this has been a devastating four years. It's been a devastating four days. It's been a devastating four months. I mean, there's like flashes of hope, but honestly, it's demoralizing to see 200,000 plus Americans die from a disease that is largely preventable. That if our leadership would actually take it seriously, there are things that we knew we know we can do to mitigate and slow down the spread of COVID. And the fact that we have leadership that doesn't care to take that seriously, doesn't care about the fact that it's disproportionately people of color dying from this and is actually laughing about it and making jokes about it. Um, not Even well. while having it. <laughs> Even while having it. Yeah, not well, Trey, not doing good here. So. And Jody. <laughs> I mean, I, I think it's the same, you know, I, and I was saying this earlier that it's trauma on top of trauma on top of trauma and insult after injury after insult after injury. And it's just been, you know, the pandemic alone, and we know all the statistics of it, but, you know, the way the disease is disproportionately affecting communities of color. So we know we have this structural issue in our healthcare system that we have to deal with. You know, for me working in uh, the healthcare space, you know, our health centers were impacted um, just trying to find PPE. I had uh, equipment delivered to my garage, literally trying to, because we're all scrounging for having enough equipment to keep Planned Parenthood's workers safe. So, I mean, that alone is traumatic, right? My kids, my daughter's home right now. She's home with me. She's not happy. She's going through the effects of, you know, you think about it from her perspective. I was thinking about this. She's uh, 10 years old when this started. And I picked her up from school one day and she hasn't seen her friends since. I mean, that's like so much to handle for an adult that one day you got picked up like normal and now you've been isolated. I mean, my poor daughter is stuck with Paul and I for <laughs> day after Worst day after day. <laughs> um, so, I mean, you know, that in, its, in and of itself is traumatic. And then to watch this administration really not help people in a, in a far reaching way that's like, unfathomable even that like equipment and ventilators and just help that's traumatic so and then to have all of the other things happen that are 
absolutely preventable when our structures are being, you know, it's so unnerved and we're having a reckoning and we're seeing civil unrest and we're, you know, RBG's death and how we've um, responded to that was to be as disrespectful as we possibly can. So I think it's just the pandemic alone, I think would be really difficult and impactful and traumatizing, but to have all these structural issues that, that are preventable or at least something that we could find hope in finding solutions. Um, that's the part that I, I agree with you, Adam, is demoralizing because it's, you know, we're not even at the leadership level willing to talk about structural problems. Um, I think if we are trying to find hope in this, although, you know, it's a daily struggle, it is that there is an election happening. It is that we feel like people are understanding, you know, I go day to day from being hopeful that, that we just saw the gender poll today and the, the difference in how people are voting, but then go back to being angry of the 53% white women that voted for Trump. So, I mean, I go back and forth on being angry and hopeful um, at the end of the day, trying to, to end with hopeful. And I think for Adama as well, we're, we're leading teams that are, that are working on these issues. So, um, you know, we have to be in a space where we have to continue moving forward and doing the work, whether we want to or not. Um, and, and at the end of the day, I'd rather be doing that than just being upset and ha not having a thing to do about it. So, Right. And we all find ourselves in the position, I mean, not by accident that we're actually doing things about what we're seeing. It's not that we're just kind of passive actors hoping that someone figures this out, which is how a lot of people must feel. Um, I mean, like this, this sort of movie that you submitted to a studio or a script, they'd be like, this, this is not believable. You know, it's like, and that's what's so crazy. It's like you pick out anything. That's lines. Yeah. It's like, <laughs> and, that, and that's the, and that's why I wanted to go, do an episode specifically on this because all of these things are intersectional, but you know, when you have this type of president where the very beginning of his presidency was kind of a, this, I think, really heralding moment for women, you know, with these women's marches and kind of a, a full rejection of, misogyny and, you know, coming on the heels of it and kind of also helping propel the Me Too movement, which we'll get into. I think that there was a really hopeful moment and out of, out of the ashes of that election came this real positive energy and organization. And we've seen, you know, that the kind of outcome of that and like where we find ourselves now, it's kind of like, where are we? Um, and so I wanted to kind of just us talk specifically, because it's hard to think about all the issues at once. We're talking about a pandemic. We're talking about a racial justice movement and unrest. We're talking about this administration. But for women, I don't want to lose fact of the kind of what is at stake. And I, so could we talk a little bit about that? Like, what is, what is the potential outcome if we don't fight back, if Trump does win again, or if we don't, like, you know, if we have this person on the Supreme Court, like, what is at stake? We'll start with Jody. Yeah, I mean, for me, and obviously where I'm working, um, you know, we keep saying reproductive rights and reproductive freedom more specifically is most definitely on the ballot. I mean, it was on the ballot four years ago. We had a Supreme Justice um, spot open during the vote, and I think people just didn't believe it. And now here we are with everything at stake, you know, going back decades. Um, and, and for me, it's, you know, I think it's hard because it's so many, even myself, you know, I'm going to be 50 years old. 
reproductive rights is not front and center necessarily for me, except that I have daughters, that it is, you know, I'm not having kids. It's not something that I have. I have access to doctors. I, you know, I have those things. But, but what women understand is it's so much more than that. It's really the core of if you don't have agency over your body, you don't have agency over your um, dignity of life and your decisions and how you can make decisions that impact the rest of your life, right? And so, uh, you know, once we're talking about that, we're talking about everything. And then that gets into racial justice, LGBTQ, all of the things and, you know, everything we keep being afraid of and then talk ourselves back out of, I think, is happening. I mean, they said Supreme Court justices yesterday talked about wanting to, to revisit marriage equality. So we're back. little change of scene. Um, I'll blame the patriarchy for that little disturbance, but... We're back now. So, Jody, I think we were talking about kind of outlining what the stakes are at the moment. Yeah, I mean, I think top of mind for us at Planned Parenthood is the Supreme Court nominee. Um, you know, that vacancy was open four years ago and people voted the way they did anyway. And now here we are with a chance for this administration to be able to put a third Supreme Court justice on the court, which will change the trajectory really for everything. But for us, um, reproductive rights is on the line like never before. And I think, you know, reproductive rights are really a form informed by oppressive structures. And what it means for women is so much more beyond what whether or not you can access birth control or abortion. It's really about whether you have agency over your life, over the decisions you make, and over your future and the destiny that you want to achieve and how you imagine your life. And I think that's what we've learned through the years. It's why there's such an intersectionality between LGBTQ plus rights and racial justice and all of those things, because it really comes down to, do you have agency over your life and your decisions? And really that's what's on the line right now with this administration and the Supreme Court. Um, so, I mean, we're gonna fight like hell in the next month and do what we can, but, you know, I think it's really important to know that our elections have consequences those decisions that we think are just about one issue or don't affect you, affect you eventually. If it's just about this one issue, it becomes about something else. And, um, you know, my hope is, I think, I think people are finally really pissed off at the idea of going back decades to a time, you know, when my mother was having these same conversations. And now I'm having to have those conversations in a fight for the life of whether or not my daughter gets to make decisions about her own destiny and how she wants to have a family and what decisions she makes. So, um, you know, I, I, I feel like agency over your destiny is really everything. I don't, I don't know what else there is really. Absolutely. You know, and I think that it's hard to call it a silver lining, but I feel like there's always, you know, the specter of Roe v. Wade being overturned that has always kind of trotted out to kind of galvanize people, but it's never been a more realistic possibility than, and almost like a certainty in some ways than now. So 
I guess hopefully that does a, a good job of kind of rallying people seriously. Um, and Adama, like, you know, obviously reproductive rights is like a very acute um, struggle that has very tangible outcomes that we can anticipate. But this has also just been like four years of just setback after setback, not just kind of politically, but also culturally. Can you speak to just kind of like, what have we under, like, what have we endured or what have women endured, I should say more specifically during this administration that is new, like newly bad and kind of, kind of sets the stage for what our fight's about? Yeah, you know, I, I don't even know that it's anything that is so newly bad. It's really the same bad stuff that women in years prior have beat back from the Reagan administration, from the Nixon administration, a lot of the civil rights. And I mean, not to beat this dead horse, but Jody is so right. Choice is really everything. And I remember right after we started working on Me Too, we went to um, the one of the CDP um, e-board meetings and Senator Feinstein was there and she stopped us, three of us who were there from We Said Enough. And she said, I need you to understand this is about choice. They are coming for choice. All of this is about choice. And she's so right because it really is about the autonomy and ability to make decisions. And that's why the conversation about social justice, um, reproductive justice, access to healthcare, um, wage disparities, all of those issues are intersectional and they all play into each other because a woman like me, I'm super fortunate, even though I am a woman of color, I have employee sponsored hair healthcare. They are not going to walk away from women and say that I don't have the right to, um, or that they're not going to provide contraceptive coverage, right? Even though the Supreme Court says they can. Um, and that's something that has been stripped away because of the composition of the court. And it's not just the composition of the Supreme Court, it's the composition of courts across the country where this administration has been able to appoint over 200 incredibly young conservative justices that are really going to shape the way that our jurisprudence and our um, civil rights look for the rest of our lifetimes and into Jody's daughter's lifetime. And so we have to continue to stay on top of that because if you look at, it's not just women here then that are losing rights. I mean, there's a global gag rule and that's one of the first things that the Trump administration did. They said that they are not going to support entities outside of the US if any $1 goes to abortion, abortion counseling, um, contraceptive counseling, those conversations. So now we're affecting women globally and what they are actually able to do. Um, some of the federal standards on what domestic violence looks like have been changed and rolled back. This administration has been very aggressive at changing, um, you know, Title IX, what that looks like, what sexual assault looks like, and what the aftermath of it looks like on campuses. Instead of putting more money into investigations, they're putting more money into counseling and help for people who are accused. So, I mean, across the board, the way that women's rights have been affected by this administration is really just a rolling back of things that women have fought so hard um, and for so long to change. Um, the fact that this administration doesn't prioritize the Violence Against Women Act, that hasn't been renewed. I mean, you can literally go just line by line and talk about ways that 
this administration has rolled back rights for women and taken those rights away. And, you know, even though we're talking about, you know, the fact that women are coming out and voting, people of color are coming out and voting, it can't just be this one-time thing. And people always wonder, you know, how do we get somebody like a Mitch McConnell or a Nancy Pelosi? And it's because people in San Francisco, people in Kentucky have been voting for these elected officials for 30 or 40 years. And voting really is cumulative. And someone who voted for Nancy Pelosi in the early 80s might not realize at that point that one day she would be the Speaker of the House or someone who was voting for Mitch McConnell when he was running for local elections might not realize that one day he'd be the President of the Senate. And so voting really does have this cumulative effect. And it is so important that young people people of color, LGBTQ, people who might feel disenfranchised, people who don't like the two-party system, um, all of those things that they get engaged and get engaged early and then stay engaged because the young person that you voted for today could end up being the president, could end up being a state senator in your state, could end up being a U.S. senator from your state. And so staying engaged has never, ever been more critical. Yeah, and I think that, like, what's really interesting, especially when you compare the kind of women's kind of, I don't want to call it women's rights, but I guess it's like the kind of pro-women movement um, compared to the kind of, I guess, racial justice movement or the BLM movement. It's like, it has really galvanized a lot of Black people who didn't consider themselves activists and kind of were, you know, they're obviously black, so they kind of are impacted by this stuff, but it's really been a wake up call, you know, um, kind of no matter what your background was, but for the female landscape, it's like Jody mentioned those 53% of white women who voted for Trump and like, uh, you know, whatever percentage that remains that will. And then you have like, you know, an Amy Coney Barrett, which I was calling the, the women's version of Clarence Thomas, you know, like replacing this iconic Except civil rights. Except far less qualified and with far less experience. <laughs> sure. I mean, it's the Trump light, but I mean, this, it's kind of creates this fragmented landscape for kind of women because you have women who are also upholding a lot of these systems that are oppressing other women. Like, can we talk a little bit about that? I don't want to speak too much on that because I feel like that's something that I would rather, you know, one of you two weigh in on, but like, how do you, kind of reconcile that and how is that affecting this kind of movement's goals and, and efficacy? Yeah, I mean, and if you hear the background of what sounds like, I don't know what, my daughter's t- doing baritone on Zoom right now. Sounds so like female that, empowerment. It's like porn sound, which is amazing. That's great. <laughs> part of all of our experience. We support um, it. No, I mean, I think it's an important conversation and it's, it's, it's frustrating, right? Because I, I do feel like, I feel like anytime there's a movement that's of, of part of a disenfranchised community, when it's not perfect, that's what people will talk about. So, so yes, I mean, I think it's far from perfect. And the, the other way that we know that 53% of women did not vote or white women did not vote for Hillary. And, and we see that true today. And, and the truth is, you know, there's intersectionality between women's rights and racial justice, and they fall into different spaces. And ultimately, 
that's the issue with supremacy, right? Is people try and hold on to whether they consciously or unconsciously do it, they try and hold on to their space. And so for a lot of white women, there is a space that they have that they feel is threatened if people like a Hillary Clinton or somebody that's more progressive that might be doing um, policies that that they might lose their their space. And, and that's true. I think, you know, somebody like um, it, Justice Ginsburg was sort of galvanizing for um, across generations and across races um, because she was able to speak in a way that I think didn't scare people. It didn't, it, but it was, but it was also that she put everything on this lens of equality ultimately. So whether whatever issue, if it was um, reproductive rights, it was still in this way of talking about it when we know it disproportionately affects women of color that we're, we're looking at it through equality and not necessarily through, you know, abortion that some people have an issue. Although I will point out that more than ever, I think the latest statistic is 77% of Americans support and want to keep Roe v. Wade legal. So it's, it's a weird train, you know, that they're on trying to take those rights away when it's not, it doesn't, um, it's not respective of, of America right now. Um, but, but I also think it's important to call it out and continue talking about it because um, the, the women's movement has not been perfect. Um, it's been far from it. I think women of color have been felt disenfranchised. I mean, I think racial justice movement came from black women understanding that the reproductive rights movement a lot of times did not include them that, you know, just fighting for a legal right when we're not talking about access, we're not talking about all the other factors, access to education and transportation and adequate healthcare and all the other equity issues, we're not part of that lens. And, you know, it's hard to fight for a legal right if you can't get that. Um, so reproductive justice was really born out of Black women having a different conversation. And so I think it's important to, um, you know, work with all of the different coalitions and listen and learn and continue as we as we go on that journey. Um, but, you know, the, the poll that came out today, the gender gap for who you're supporting for this president is huge. It's bigger than it's it's ever been. It makes me disappointed in my male colleagues, to be honest, that it's still kind of a neck and neck tie for who they're supporting versus I think it's 66%, 33% or something for women. But it really speaks to after four years, and you know, maybe that's what it took is four years of understanding the, the polar difference when you have someone who's really not just even at the legal center and everything we've talked about trying to take down reproductive rights, but even culturally and respect and how he speaks of women, how this administration talks about women, the, the culture that I think, and, and, you know, Adama, this is why she was so great in calling it out in a letter, but this culture of using language, using intimidation tactics, all of these things to sort of put women in a place that was really a barrier to be successful or to lead. 
And I think you right. know, I'll witness that so blatantly that I, I, I do think that it's galvanized women to join together in a whole different way. I think that's, that's true for racial justice right now, too, that there's, there's allies that we didn't have before that, that we do now. You know, I, I, one of the questions that I got asked the most when we started We Said Enough is, what are you going to do about women who are oppressive to other women? And, you know, at the time I was like, yeah, it's an issue, but it's not my biggest issue. And I, I feel like that's coming back around again. You know, there's like, there's a thing, and sure, you know, those black folks say this, not all skin folk are kin folk, you know? Um, and it's the same thing with women. And I've had many conservative women now say, oh, well, what are you gonna say now? There's gonna be another female Supreme Court justice. You know, are you gonna support her? And I was like, no, why would I support her? She doesn't support me. Her track record on racial justice issues is horrendous. Her track record on choice is incredibly clear. And frankly, I don't have to support all women. Like this weird thing that like, if you are, you know, involved in any kind of like movement for justice, you have to support all of something. Like, no, nah, I don't have to support Amy Comey Barrett. She don't support me. Why would I? And frankly, I think the most pro-woman stance that you can have is to be pro-choice. I mean, personally, whatever my feelings are on abortion, it really doesn't matter because I shouldn't be able to say what another woman can or cannot do with her body, just like no one should be able to tell me that. And so, no, I don't support all women. And I feel very strongly that if women want to be supported, they have to support other women. And they have to support their choices. And if someone, a woman like that is going to go on the Supreme Court and be absolutely disrespectful of the choices of other women, in fact, go as far as to take rights from another woman, no, I don't have to support that. And I actually have a duty then to speak up and to say that she is not the right choice. She's not representative of America. She absolutely changes the composition of the court, which is something that she spoke out on four years ago and said that there shouldn't be a pick that changed the composition of the court. And yet here she is in the Rose Garden celebrating the fact that she is going to be put on the court jammed through at the last moment. You mean that COVID party? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. The COVID yeah, party. And I, I mean, what I say, the, the frustrating part about her and, and others that are supporting her is you know, we, we didn't even get a minute to grieve for everything that Justice Ginsburg stood for. But we do know that she her whole life's work was opening those doors for women and be very clear that Amy Coney Barrett um, benefited from those doors being open. And she walked right through them without any difficulty. I shouldn't say any difficulty, but certainly with an easy easier effort than the, the people in front of her. And she's very willing to slam the door back shut for, for my daughters and the people behind her. So it's frustrating, but it's also important to remember that, um, you know, I, I, I agree with Adama. I think with any of the movements, it's always going back to what about this woman or what about these yeah. women that are, that are, uh, you know, the, not as great in the women's movement, but at the end of the day, we've still never had a woman president. We still have men in leadership. So, you know, we are not to blame. <laughs> and I was blame you, and women, women fall into for where we are right now. Yeah. And women fall into the same patriarchal tropes 
that men are in, especially women who have a very close proximity to power. They fall into those same patriarchal tropes because that's what's modeled for them. That's what they see. That's the only system they know. And that's the system that they know to operate in. And you have to operate at that same level if you want to be in those rooms at those tables. And it's, you know, if it's nothing, no skin off your back, if you have nothing to lose, if the status quo is fine for you, it's very easy for you to continue to sit at those tables and drink that Kool-Aid. It gets harder for the rest of us. And I think that there's something, you know, kind of misogynistic about the fact that we, like you said, there's not a female president. Most CEOs are not female. Most, you know, economic power is not wielded by women. We spend so many times talking about Karens and kind of like demonizing like these women who are problematic when it's like, look at the men who like are actually the ones who hold all this power and are exercising it in ways that exclude women and everyone else. Um, and I think it's like, and that's where most of the abuse is happening. Sure, I mean, it's really messed up that Amy Coney Barrett can go on the court and undo all these things that, you know, presumably would help her um, and won't impact her at all because she's so privileged and powerful at this point. But, you know, there's a lot of other dudes on that court that are going to also, many more there's men. There's a bunch of dudes that are going to be writing that majority opinion. Let's exactly, speak. you know, and there's an insane, and I think that we've seen this even like with the, and here's where we can kind of get into like the kind of cultural uh, impacts of this era and especially kind of coming after or coming during this Me Too movement. And I, I kind of wanted to sit at, at, you know, maybe Adama, you can speak to this. It's kind of like, it's been a few years. We've seen so many of these, you know, men be um, kind of ousted or, or exposed and all of this energy kind of put toward kind of having this conversation. Um, and yet here we are with this president. A lot of these men, are, you know, not all of them, but some of them are kind of creeping back. Uh, and I just wonder what kind of we think about the gains, like what's still, there is a lot to still be done there. And so kind of where do we sit with that? Um, you know, I think we all knew that this was not going to be a one and done kind of fight, right? That this was is a fight against structure and power systems that really have endured for a long time. And it was never going to be easy. And it's very clear that a lot of men have kind of really just tied their entire like worldview and value systems um, into this current president. And they basically would rather die than see him go down. And they like the fact that he has been accused of sexual assault by about 30 women, right? Um, these aren't deal breakers for a lot of men, we know that. Um, and so it just means that we have to continue to work. Uh, we have to continue to organize. We have to continue to educate. We have to continue to be open and have conversations. I mean, we just don't get to stop. That's really what this means to me. And, you know, we are kind of past the moment where every day it's a new headline of a new awful man being taken down. But I mean, we know this, Jody and I know this, there's still plenty of those men in politics and they've just kind of managed to like skirt the radar or, um, you know, have cleaned up their act just well enough to kind of fly under the surface. Um, but it's not over. And, you know, I think when, I think when we first, first started this, like when we first did the letter, my thought was, 
we're just going to do this letter. We're going to get it out there. And this will kind of have like a chilling effect. And maybe we can like just get our lives back on track. That's honestly what I thought. I thought this is going to be a shot across the bow. And maybe some of the bad behavior will just chill out. And it became so much more than that. And when so many women started just pouring out their hearts with these horrendous stories, and then people started contacting us from all over the place, that's when I realized, oh, I've now signed up for the long haul. And I, maybe some of these guys can slip back into their jobs that I apparently don't get to just slip back into my life and move on with it, like business as usual. Um, I do now have a responsibility to continue to use my platform and my voice to continue to talk about these things. So that's how I personally feel about it. And I still hear from women on almost a weekly basis, all of us from women who are like, Hey, this is what happened to me. Is this, you know, sexual assault? Is this harassment? How do I handle this? And so it doesn't end. It doesn't end. And we just have to keep working. And I wish I could tell you there was a silver bullet, but we have to keep working. You know, the silver bullets are still being raised. You know, it's like Jody's daughter's picking up the kind of work that's being done right now. Um, Jody, you had a comment and I wanted to- I was just gonna say, I think it's important to note that the work that Adama and We Said Enough and some of the other groups, Time's Up and Hollywood and, you know, in the different facets, I think it's important that, um, well, uh, you know, I know it feels exhausting. It does for me on on other issues that, that it really is a life's work now, right? And I'm sure that seems exhausting. I can see your face. Um, <laughs> but it's also important to really note and take in the changes that were made, though, because there were change, there were substantive policy changes that were made that are important. But I think more than that, cultural, I mean, it's like when you can start changing um, culture and hearts and minds, or at least the lens in which people look through. So, so it almost doesn't matter. It doesn't matter to me for, for when my daughters go into the workplace necessarily. I mean, I want my son to see through a lens where he's respecting women and, and, and working towards that. But honestly, if the other person sitting next to my daughter just knows that they have to behave or they're going to get fired, that's enough too, honestly. And that's great. That's and way that's better than work. what we had, you know? Yeah. And that's the work that that group accomplished and is continuing to work towards, right? Where these next generation and certainly this generation that had to clean it up um, at their nights out. I mean, we, we lost restaurants in Sacramento before. Yeah, right. Yeah, before yeah, lost whole bars. Yeah. Lost whole yeah. streets. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so, I mean, you the, know, they lost retainers. <laughs> well, I think that, you know, speaking to the cultural aspect, because like, you know, as I have worked with Planned Parenthood on our projects and I've seen, I think the storytelling that has emerged from this is also, I, I'm not sure if you've seen the show on HBO, uh, I May Destroy You. Mm-hmm. It's a, you know, Michaela Quell's kind of story mm-hmm. of her own assault. And it is, I mean, she's a brilliant storyteller, but just like the specificity and kind of the rawness, um, the honesty of her about like, and the fact that that type of story is on HBO, this is a black woman telling it as well. Um, that I feel like is also an outcome of this movement. It's kind of people 
not being in the shadows anymore and the fact that it's so mainstream now that you could have a show like that which i hope wins everything because it should um is a product of and all the other stories i mean you have women who are much more open like chrissy teigen just recently with her miscarriage like i it's not related to assault but it's a, it's related to this kind of revolution of women telling their stories authentically and and it's always amazing to see so many women who are like that happened to me you know and so it's not always about assault it's also just about kind of womanhood more generally. And I think that as a man who's, you know, l listening to stories a lot, that's been really powerful to see. And I think that is attributable to Adama and, and her like who are out there um, making sure that these stories are able to be told and people feel safe to do that. Yeah, and I think received. I know we've even at Planned Parenthood, especially in our LA affiliation, have been contacted by Hollywood when they want to start telling stories about things like abortion and telling them in the right way. Because what would happen if you remember when I was a kid, it was always like a teenage pregnancy, but then ultimately she'd have a miscarriage, right? Because we don't want to talk about whether or not she had to make the decision. And we don't want to talk about if that makes her bad or good or whatever. So we wouldn't like go through the whole story or it just not being told in the right way. And I think a lot of those stories are being told differently and better, um, you know, e all of it from assault to Christy Teigen. Christy Teigen is a, is a good example of really being authentic in what she went through in both pictures and, and how she wrote about it. But then also the, the horrible backlash of people, especially men feeling like they had to have a say in what she should or shouldn't do, which just goes back again to this culture of not being able to fully give women full autonomy and it's autonomy over everything. It's over your body, but it's over your, who you are and how you make decisions and how you tell your story and how you live your life. And I, I found it fascinating how many people just really felt ownership in, in having their opinion when it, it wasn't anything about them, right? It was her and her journey. But I think mostly people appreciated it that, you know, I think a lot of people suffer on that and, and didn't feel like, you know, when things are uncomfortable or not as good stories to tell, they don't tell them. Um, we recently had a pictorial um, in one, a magazine about a young woman who <clears throat> during the pandemic got on a plane from Texas to get an abortion in California because that's the times they were living in. And, it, you know, they didn't consider the, that essential uh, health care. And she was, you know, a very young woman and had to navigate not only that decision, but travel and a pandemic and, and all of those things. And I think Things, those kinds of stories are helpful in telling the full story of what people go through when their decisions are, are taken away from them. Sure. Yeah. We definitely, when we started talking to reporters, that was one of my first requests to reporters that I didn't want the story to be like the weird thing where women's faces are in shadow and like their voices changed and they have no it's, it's all about shame, right? Mm -hmm. um, because we all felt very strongly, like those of us that were telling our stories, we are hardworking women. Um, 
this wasn't something we asked for. This is something that continued to happen to us. And the only way that we could really change it or change the trajectory and have an honest conversation about it was to be open and honest and to not fall into this thing where it's shameful that you were sexually assaulted or it's shameful that you were harassed or shameful that you were discriminated against because those are things that someone else did to you. And we realized we had to stop internalizing that shame. And the only way that we could do that was by saying, yes, this happened to me and it was wrong. Um, Otherwise we sit with the shame and we sit there and we're like, you know, you start parsing all of these weird things like, well, I did have this blouse that was unbuttoned a little bit, or I did have, you know, three drinks instead. And it's just like, and so part of being able to tell these stories in a really authentic way is to dispel the shame and take away the shame away from it. And, you know, we keep going back to reproductive issues, but yeah, many women struggle with infertility, struggle with miscarriages. Um, And to be able to have that conversation that, you know, and she was very open about it. The fact that she's, Christy Teigen struggled with infertility and now she's um, lost this child and she was open and honest and it helped it to me. If it even helped one woman be able to come to terms with the fact it that it just helped her or her. Yeah. Or her. Mm-hmm. Right. That, you know, sometimes it really sucks as a woman, your body betrays you at times and it is just the worst. And to be able to have that open and honest conversation, I thought it's, it's incredible and it's brave. Mm-hmm. So I, I think that that, you know, that's like, you know, there's also that movie Unpregnant on HBO is just killing it on the gender yeah, game. Really. Um, <laughs> you know, I was learning all kinds of things watching that. So I feel like that, and you know, it was a very, I thought, um, interesting in its depiction of the actual procedure. You know, mm-hmm. it's like, it wasn't this kind of weird shrouded thing. Um, and so I think those are real gains. I think that one, uh, one of the things I want to talk about is kind of the impact COVID has had on a lot of these gains. Um, I think that, you know, and Jody, you can speak to this as a working mom. Like, first of all, God bless you working moms. Cause I don't even know, like I'm over here barely dealing with my own life, let alone the lives of others. And I'm like fully, fully maxed out. <laughs> so I can't imagine, but you know, I've been, I was really interested to read these stories of these women who now both of the parents are in the household. They're both having to work and like whatever type of balance that they were able to strike you know, whether it was through privilege, being able to afford help or childcare or whatever it was, like kind of instantly evaporated. And like, can you speak to that? Because I feel like it shows how not durable some of these gains, you know, that seem like they're real. When something like this happens, like the women take on all the extra work. Yeah, I mean, the the data that's coming out right now is it's it's disheartening, but it, it, it's also like, I, I'm afraid. I'm afraid that we're going to go back when all this is over, um, just statistically women are dropping out of the workforce um, at a way higher rate than men are, um, you know, for, for, for me and for my family and my situation, we are able to work from home, but for, for many women that are nurses that work in grocery stores that are teachers that are, you know, depending on how they're teaching, but it's not, that's not an option. And so when the school, the schools are out and you're making a decision now about going to your work as a nurse or a medical assistant. And we're seeing this in, in the Planned Parenthood health centers right now is mm-hmm. if you're making a decision between that and now having to pay full-time 
some type of childcare or tutoring so your kid can go to school. Mathematically, it doesn't work out, but it's also, you know, just women take on that, that guilt and responsibility. And so we're seeing women drop out of the workforce, which is going to set, I mean, our, the, the pay gap was already big, especially for women of color prior to COVID, but we're going back um, pretty far. And then, you know, again, the responsibilities in the home, just in terms of mental health and, and all of those issues are really impacting women much more than, than men. And it's just, you know, even when we come back out of COVID, I think a lot of those things will, will linger and, um, you know, not to mention how we're dealing with child abuse and domestic violence, which is we're not dealing with it. Right. So intimate partner violence, we know is up. We know that child abuse um, reported cases are down by like 51%, which is actually really scary because it just means that nobody is seeing what's happening and reporting um, when they're not at school. So, I mean, the, the effects in terms of uh, healthcare, mental health, but also our economy and where women are in that space is is scary. And I think, you know, hearkening back again to the election, it's again, this issue on we, we're going to have real problems to deal with um, and how we find solutions to fix them, this being one of them. And, you know, we already had issues with not enough women, if any women at all are CEOs or, or on a board, right, that are making these types of decisions. I can tell you for, for me and my team, my executive team has little kids. I feel very fortunate. I have one, I have three kids, two out of the house, only one at home um, doing schoolwork, but it's a lot for me to make sure. And we're all on zoom. And, you know, like I said, she's doing baritone band in the background and, you know, trying to make sure like when she takes a break, she goes back, all of those things. It's a lot for just one. But I have um, some of my staff that has two little kids. Some don't even know how to read yet. And they're supposed to do independent distance learning when they're five years old. It's just impossible. And so for my workforce, I would say at some part of the day, every day, somebody is out. Either they're dealing with something with their kid or something with, you know, childcare or something. There's, there's, so I don't have a full team, but I all the time, like 100% all the time. I'm also a woman dealing with all the same issues. So so how do I handle it? I make accommodations, right? I know not to hold a meeting at 9am, because everybody's trying to get their kids on zoom. So we don't we change the schedule. That's not true. And it's not true. If you don't have women as represented in those as the decision makers for policies. Um, and that's going to be really, really true for our elected officials that are going to be making policy as we come back out of this and how we we have to be. And, you know, going back to even an initiative right now for affirmative action, but how we're going to be proactive in trying to put this back together instead of just saying, well, you know, that happened. It did affect women, but it must be because something's wrong. It with is that. what it is. Anything. They can't even make accommodations for that legislator in California who had just had a baby and yeah. couldn't, what was it? She couldn't vote remotely. So she had to come in there with this infant with and be one. like, yeah, yeah, you know. 
And what I found striking about that as a newborn or as a mother of a newborn who has done that, quite frankly, I, I came back when Seneca was like 10 days old to do something because I felt like I had to. That's exactly how women think. We don't think we're like making this big changing sweeping thing we're just like oh there's work to do oh if i don't do it uh nobody's gonna do it so i'm just gonna do it and i you know that's what she did she's okay we're bringing the kid in because you know i'm breastfeeding and i can't leave him at home and i have to do this or else this might happen so i'm just gonna do it and that's what women do right but but it takes those kind of women to be doing that before somebody else sees that there there needs to be policy changes. Well, it's too bad that, I mean, I mean, as a man, like I apologize for how oblivious and ridiculous a lot of men are, because why should it be that a woman being the executive is the one who will understand how to make accommodations? Because to me, what that also says, it's like the women are all the ones putting the kids on Zoom. You know, where are these dads putting the kids on Zoom? You know what I'm saying? And so I think that a lot of this discussion has been around kind of establishing basic rights and kind of respect. But it's, it's I, I, why is it not? I mean, I guess this is going a place I wasn't intending to go. But like, what does it take to get men to be in the driver's seat? Because like one, one thing I'll make a parallel about is like, one of the reasons the BLM kind of racial justice movement really got some legs this last few months is because white people were finally like, you know what, this is actually ridiculous. And I'm at home with no sports and no distractions and nothing I can, I, all I can do is watch videos and see how horrible racism is. Oh, damn. You know, it's like, how are men not having that? Because like all these women are married to men. They're having babies with these men. You have to, you know, most of the time. So it's like, how do they not, I mean, I, obviously men are the ones who hold all the power and stand to, you know, lose the most with gender equity, but like, what's the men moment look like? Like the kind of, at least, at least a superficial white moment for racial justice occurred. Adama, do you want to tackle that one? Yeah, you know, this is a really a, a huge topic of conversation in corporate America. Um, most of the top female executives in my company have stay-at-home husbands. Because, I mean, I know just the way that my schedule is just with work. If I had a husband and a child, one of us would have to be at home. And I mean, it would be like, I'd be looking at him and he'd be looking at me and I'd be like, but my job, playa, because (laughs) I I mean... it, it, it comes down to a real choice. And a lot of these women had husbands who were successful, but at the end of the day, and I mean, it is a large number of women who have stay at home husbands at my company, because that is really the only way that you can do it. Somebody just has to be home, especially if you're going to have multiple kids. And if the woman has the high flying career and like, look, I don't know what the ins and outs of these individual decisions were, but I mean, I know what my husband would have to be doing for me to say, okay, I can willingly step away from this job and really do that because a, I love this job. B I've worked really hard for it. C like I'm probably the breadwinner in a relationship. So, I mean, it would take a real conversation about how we make the family work. And I've just, I've seen that now with so many women across corporate America at the VP and up level, like they've just 
made that calculus and the men stay home. And you know what? They do a fine job. So, I mean, the conversation is continuing to evolve, but I have seen that more and more as I've advanced in my career. Men are staying at home with the kids. And now I will say it's been really interesting to watch over the last few months because a number of women have said, yeah, so now I'm at home now. And all of a sudden they're like, oh, but you're here too now. And they're like, yeah, but the job stayed the same. Um, because I will definitely say the actual cadence and pace of my job while I now, you know, I'm at home, uh, the workload like tripled overnight. I mean, the number I think, and it was interesting, our CEO, you know, gave us all these stats and it was like conference calls were up over 300%. Productivity was up almost a thousand percent within the first three months because people were like, I guess this is the new normal. And so to layer that- We're also probably trying to prove that they can do their job at home. Right. Well, and you know, and for some, just different, for different reasons, sometimes the workload really did increase. And so now, you know, we're having a lot of those really difficult conversations because people are realizing this is a long-term thing and we have to give wellness hours. We have to accommodate, or we are going to lose a lot of women who might not be at those upper levels of the company, but women who are at the, you know, director, senior director levels, whose husband also works. And they're looking at the fact that, you know what, maybe I do have to quit my job. Maybe I do have to be the primary kind of caregiver because they are, like you said, getting kids on Zooms, trying to figure out how to do learning pods, trying to do all these different things to make the current situation work. And it is setting women back and we're seeing it at the company and we're trying to figure out how do we support women so that we don't lose them. And that's, well, I think that's something that's very, it's a conversation that's really prevalent in corporate America right now. Well, it's just a really, it's just, a, it's kind of like all these things reinforce the other things like this gender gap or the, you know, the gender wage gap ensures that men are paid more. So every time a man and a woman have to come together and say, well, who's quitting a job? It's like obviously always going to be the man because like he because he's a man gets more money right and it's just kind of like this vicious cycle that like yeah you know COVID is just you know COVID is really good at just exposing everything that's wrong and like and then and then kind of resetting it so I also feel like there's a an opportunity for men and this is kind of what I was getting at is that like this is not a sustainable society for any of us you know I mean men think they have it made but like none of us win in a situation where like half of us or more than half of us are so desperate just for like the bare minimum, you know, of respect, let alone like actual rights and equality. So, I mean, that's been the part that for me has been really challenging is how do you convince the people that think they're winning that aren't winning that, well, you know, you know, part of this, when we started doing, um, when me too started, you know, becoming a real conversation, I don't think men realized how prevalent sexual harassment was because the, the shock and awe that I heard from male allies was like, it was ridiculous. Like men would say, it's not happened to them. Right. And and we never forced it, you know, we didn't jam it down their throats because, you know, as we've all said, like, I don't want to talk about that time that dude touched my butt. I want to talk about the deals I'm doing, the policy I'm working on, the substantive change that I'm pushing for. And so it wasn't something that we brought up. And he's still right here. (laughs) Right. And this man, you know, these men were like, really? And I'd be like, everywhere we go, every job you've had, every woman you know, this is a real issue. And it is 50 times worse than you can even imagine. 
And if it's the same fragility over that issue, then, you know, white people get about racism too. It's this, you know, like I don't know what because they want to just still think it's like a joke that they could handle but women couldn't and I think to your point Trey about white allies with racial justice I, I really believe part of it was everybody's home they're seeing these images on tv I think that was part of it I think the other part of it was going back to covid um, and, I, and I've heard psychologists talk about this a little bit, is this was also the first time that white people felt uncomfortable doing normal things. So they're uncomfortable going to the store and they were uncomfortable. They didn't feel safe going out and about doing their regular business. They didn't feel safe going to a restaurant, didn't feel safe, you know. And so then when this conversation happens about, you know, Black people not feeling safe going to the store at night because of what could happen or not feeling safe around over-policing of bodies. I think it was finally like a light bulb of like, oh, that, you know. They've always had COVID. Yeah, they're having to have some level of empathy that they didn't understand before. And so to the point of when are men going, when is that? Um, switch going to be flipped. I mean, I think, you know, income inequality is a part of it, but I, I do think you see, as Adama said, in, in cases where it's either equal income or women are making more, that there is a, a change in, you know, how that how people do their family distribution of work because there's a need to, or there's an understanding at that point, what happens if they don't? What happens if she quits her job and all of a sudden our whole lifestyle changes, right? So um, hopefully it doesn't have to get to that point. But I, I will also say what I find interesting in a home where our, you know, I am privileged enough to know that we have an equal distribution of, of income in my house. I can make full um, choices in how I live my life, you know, with or without my husband, to be frank, and I'm, he probably doesn't love to hear that, but I can. I can be okay, you know. Oh, I'm joking. Yeah, and the choices I make, I choose to okay, be married. <laughs> but, you know, I can be okay, and I can make those choices, and, you know, we have to make our decisions accordingly, and, and him as well. Um, but, but what I find interesting is culture, before it catches up with that, is, like, I still feel when I'm still the only woman in the room, it's not, doesn't happen as much now as Planned Parenthood, but before in more corporate America, I'm still the only woman in the room. So when I'm working late, I still got the like, where are your kids or who's taking care of your kids? And now it's a judgment on me that I am being more corporate focused and not taking care of my kids. And it's certainly a judgment on Paul when he is the one, you know, I got that a lot, like, Oh, you know, I wish we all had a wife or we, you know, as if that's a pejorative term. So, I mean, I think jail free card. Yeah, (laughs) totally. I think our culture is just not, you know, we just have to get there. And, and part of it is representation as we see more and more men, taking care of families because it's decisions and how families decide to split the workload. Um, It will matter more, but right now it's not good. I think it's, I think the statistic is terrible. I think it's like 80% of women are dropping out of the workforce um, during this time. Like 80% of the people dropping out are women. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. 
Yeah. Well, yeah. No, that's ridiculous. Um, there's something I want to touch upon briefly. I'm going to do another episode to kind of flush this out more, but I think that, you know, one of the things that is pervasive through all of these movements is that, you know, everyone, especially people who are oppressing, like they want to, even if you're oppressed, you want to hang on to the little bit you have. So you end up like oppressing like someone a little bit lower than you. Um, and, you know, when you talk about women, you know, we're also talking about trans women and women who like have experienced, you know, probably by far the most violence and kind of um, the kind of the risk of death at the hands of, you know, an intimate partner. And I, I know that there's been this tension at points between kind of like the women's movement and the kind of trans women's movement. You saw JK Rowling's kind of, um, you know, very unfortunate tweets and kind of digging her heels in about what she believes is like a true separation of these issues. Kind of how do you, how do we start to build something that's so inclusive that it can actually provide space for the people who are most, because I'm always the opinion, if you can make, if we can create a world where a black trans woman can own a home, walk down the street without feeling unsafe, can actually like, you know, get married, live their lives openly without fear, then like, me and Adama and Jody, like we must, we will be real good because if we can take care of that person, then you've already eliminated so many social issues and economic issues that you've actually lifted everyone up from where they stood. So kind of yeah. what are your thoughts on that? So I think that's why it's super important for movements to be inclusive. And this is a conversation that we've had in corporate America quite a bit. And, you know, we've been talking a lot about how do we increase black representation in tech and, you know, trying to have that conversation, it always brings in other people then who are like, but what about these people? What about these people? And we've had to push back um, very hard because advances that help black people disproportionately help white women. And so your point that when you take care of the least of us, it really does take care of everyone and it does create a better environment. And you know, I think that, you know, this administration has also been incredibly harmful to trans people, trans people in service to um, rolling back rights, attempting to roll back rights on health care um, and allow discrimination to really flourish against trans people. And it's so incredibly unfortunate. And I think that's why movements have to be somebody's, you know, I, I keep, I always hear it, but it's just kind of like, if your movement isn't intersectional, it really ain't shit. It really just isn't in this day and age. And so if we are not talking about trans and LGBTQ and blacks and Asians, um, we really aren't doing that much because we have to take care of black women, period. And I really don't care trans, pre, whatever. Like, I don't really care. If you identify as a woman, I am right there for you. I believe that you need to have the same rights as everybody else walking down the street, the same access to healthcare, the same access to financial services, all of those things. I mean, it should be a given in America. And the fact that we are still having this conversation and the fact that trans women are still have to, you know, log on to Twitter and see a world famous author trying to draw fake lines and delineations. It's offensive and it's offensive to all women, frankly. 
So I, it's, it, it's part of the movement that we have to continue to grow and adapt. And, you know, it's a struggle a lot of times in the black community, the LGBTQ issue is a struggle in the black community at times. And we have to continue to push past that and push through it. I mean, and this is a conversation I have with members of my family. I grew up evangelical Christian. And so we continue to have these incredibly offensive conversations, you know, um, about who or what constitutes a woman. And I'm just like, I'm not having that conversation. That's not a negotiable for me. And so, especially as black people, we have to continue to lean in on LGBTQ issues. We just have to. You don't get to pick and choose what black well, people I don't get to tell you. About. I don't get to tell you. Like, yeah. you say you're a woman, cool, whatever. Right. Same black. issue. Like, we got no, all kind of issues, man. Those women, not oh. those women. Those blacks, not those blacks. It's yeah. like, it's either blacks or it's not, you know? So, right. Um, Joey, do you have anything to add about that? I mean, I think I think there's something inherent before we lean in, as Adama said, and, and work through it. I think there's something inherent in people that can identify their own struggle But when someone else has a struggle, they want to somehow believe that they got ahead because they did something right. Not because they not because they started ahead, not because they got a higher seat, but because they somehow did something better. And so I think it goes down the line and, you know, the how we've treated our trans community and how we've treated black women and how we've treated black trans women on, you know, as the. Uh, the worst is, is it's just such a statement of how much and how far we need to um, go and how much we need to keep working. I always remember um, for me, it's, you know, the, the story about jazz and the, the book that came out that was a kid's book. Um, that was a big controversy in here locally where a teacher read it to her students and mm-hmm. all the parents freaked out and there was a whole thing. And Seneca was like, right at that age, I think she was like eight or nine. And so um, Paul and I at the same time ordered the book and didn't realize the other one did it, which is so true in our household. And so two the books came and we were actually gone. She was with a sitter. And so when I came home, she found that she had found the book and she had read it on her own. I was going to read it with her because in my head, because again, we're all learning. I thought I was going to have to have this conversation and like talk to her about it and have this whole thing. But no, she read it on her own. And when I got home, the thing that has always struck me and I try and look through this lens of her is she comes running up to me and she's like, I found this book and it was so great. And it's about this little girl named Jazz. And, you know, she was picked on but then she found her destiny. Like that's her, that's how her words and how she interpreted that is she was able to find her destiny. And she tried to donate the book to her school and the school was like, thank you. Um, We're going to have to have a conversation. (laughs) I think now it's on the shelves. Oh yeah, better be. (laughs) But it's so simple, right? It's just so simple. And we want to make it so complicated, which is, everyone should be able to, without barriers, live those lives. And I think um, we just, there's something about us that wants to believe that we got there faster because we did something better, not because, you know. Well, that's how, I mean, that's the system that, you know, it's, it's like kids don't see race. Kids don't have a problem with these things. Little boys like wearing dresses, girls like playing with dinosaurs, like whatever. And if, as we grow up under this patriarchal system and the male gaze and all these other things that we start to realize, oh, that's 
not, well, I guess I shouldn't be like that. And we, it's totally learned behavior. And it's, you know, it's, it's really, really a shame then when you see policies that codify those learned behaviors and those structures and systems that we don't even like, you know? I mean, I guess- so, no one really like, benefits from except- Yeah. But it also Joe means Biden we can unlearn and we can, yeah. you know, so, I mean, I think that's all we can do is continue to try and unlearn from the structures that, that, and, and. I grew up evangelical. Take down and rebuild. I'm learning things. I am yeah. still unlearning. And we're homies. That, <laughs> you know, it's yeah. possible. Well, I, I know we have to wrap up shortly. And I, I want to kind of get your guys' last thoughts about kind of like what's to come in the future. Cause to me, Looking at that debate on last week, and I was just like, this is where we are. Like, we've got, you know, a true, true monster, you know, over here, which we need to eliminate, and everyone's focused on that. But then our other, you know, option is still an old white man. You couldn't, I couldn't help but be like, what if that was Elizabeth Warren? Or like, what if that was Kamala Harris? Or really on Castro, even like anybody else, you know? So I just feel like it was, but to me, it was very much proof that like this, the hegemony of like white old male leadership is it's gotta be over, you know? And I think that like, it, it shouldn't, it should, I think everyone looking at that could be like, this is the last I need to see of this. So like, maybe that's a silver lining is that because it's, it's the emperor has no clothes anymore. And now it's like, we are forced to consider hopefully a, and it might be a real fight to get there, but I think enough people are on board. So like kind of what do you, like what is the next month, few months, kind of like what's the future you're painting for yourself in terms of this fight? Yeah, I, you know, one of the things that I, I've always loved the most about working in politics and um, is that I get to talk to candidates all the time, people who want to run for office. And it's interesting because I can have really candid conversations, especially with women who say, yeah, I want to run for office especially when they would come up to Sacramento and they would be like, you know, I've got two kids and this and that. And we'd have really candid conversations about what it takes to raise money, what it takes to live in one place, but work in another place and basically have to live there too. And I think we do really have to continue to bring women into the political system. We have to continue to bring young women in and not as just candidates and, you know, but as women who work in public policy, as women who want to be active at the local level on school boards, on planning commissions, on city councils, on um, community college boards. I mean, we need women at all levels. We need people of color um, and we need young people. And I think that, you know, it's interesting and maybe it's just because I'm getting older, but like a lot of these candidates seem to be getting younger, you know, I mean, candidates. <laughs> all across the country, but, you know, that are in their 20s who are running for things. I mean, like Michael Tubbs down in Stockton, um, you know, there's just incredible talent that is coming up right now. And we have to continue to encourage that and foster that. And that's why, you know, when I talk to young people, I work with our new grads at, at Visa and I mentor like a bunch of young African-American kids like coming up through the corporate ladder. And I'm always just like, you got to stay involved and you got to like, don't look at those two old white men who were yelling at each other. Look around you because the young, talented candidates, people of color, women, 
they're at the local level, like voting down ballot is super important. Don't just vote for, you know, Biden Harris and be like, I don't know the rest of these people dig in. Because if you want to know where like the next generation of presidential hopefuls and state elected officials and all of those places are coming for, it's down ballot. It's the people in your communities and it's you like you can also very easily decide, you know what? Sick of this shit. I don't like none of these people. I'm going to run or I'm going to go, you know, volunteer. I'm going to work on, I mean, when we can actually GOTV and like, you know, door knock again. <laughs> We're just texting but, for now. But right now, I mean, you know, like swingleft.com, like they've got phone banking you can do. You can write postcards to undecided voters and it is not too late. Um, so I, I, I think that there is hope and I find it in young people and young candidates staying engaged, getting engaged and continuing to organize at these local levels with people of color, with people who look like you, with trans brothers and sisters, with LGBTQ brothers and sisters. That's my vision. Don't look at this sideshow. That is what it is. You can't change that today. We've got to continue to work towards something. Amen. Yeah, I mean, I think it's the the moving forward. I, you know, when 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 Hillary lost, I, I you know, it, it was a bad. I don't even know how long it was bad for. It was bad four years, but it was a bad four years. But it was a bad couple of weeks right after, and, and it really felt for me. It really felt personal. It really felt like. You know, we we keep talking about wanting to have different representation. We keep talking about wanting to have women lead. And every time a woman is a leader, we demonize her and the, the vitriol and the anger and the, all of the things. And it felt very personal, like, oh, my gosh, how who can ever withstand that? Who can ever be the one? Um, and then this time around, you know, we started out with candidates that were LGBT, that was more women running than ever before of all different colors. And, you know, we had all, we had black men, we had Latino, we had black women, we had all of the things and we ended up, you know, the choice is what it was made. And, but what I have to think about is there's been so much damage done in this four years that, that if we have to take some baby step to get to where we need to get to, I'm, I'm really, I'm at peace. And, and I really think that um, we're all doing the work we need to do to get to something different. And I, and I do think, you know, his choice in vice president matters. I think it matters in that he, not just that he, did it, but that I think he almost couldn't have made any different choices. Like he had to pick a woman of color because that's what was demanded of him. And I think we have to just keep up that demand and it's mm -hmm. with our votes. It's with how we get involved in policies, um, you know, get on whether you're voting um, for, for people this time around, but, but get on the, the, committees on how to make policies, like have your voice heard and make demands. And that's, that's really how we're going to enact change. And I, and I do think it's time, you know, it's, it's certainly time has, you know, it's been time for a long time, but I, I do think that we're demanding it at this point. 
Um, and if we had to take this horrific path to get there, then, you know, I, it, it, it hopefully will have been worth it. So um, that's, that's where I sit today. I think this election is a, is a turning point for a lot of things, but I think it's a turning point for how things will look different four years from now. Right. I mean, I've told myself that too. I was like, well, I guess if like, this is what America needed to experience to get it shit together, then I guess it will be worth it. I mean, TBD. <laughs> um, right. But, you know, it's, you know, sometimes I imagine had Hillary won, you know, a lot of these movements, people will just been patting themselves on the back being like, look at how great America is. And we wouldn't have necessarily had to do this unmasking of who we really are and what's really happening. And so I think that, you know, the work you two are doing and so many others is really encouraging. And, you know, Seneca practicing her, you know, instrument, like, is really encouraging to hear because you're like, that is what sounds like progress to me. It's like 10 year old women or girls kind of growing up in this context, seeing everything that is at stake and what women like you have been doing to kind of lead the way. They're very fortunate. We're fortunate. All of us are fortunate to have you. So, uh, and I'm fortunate enough that you guys came on this episode. This is really, really fun and cathartic and necessary. So I really appreciate it. Um, you guys continue to kill it. Keep your heads up. Keep your fingers and toes crossed and like everything else for November. And then uh, we'll go from there. We'll see where we go from there. Thank you so much. Go vote. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Yes. All right. Take care, guys. Thanks so much. Bye, guys.